0: Welcome to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Mercier. Louise is a nutritional therapist, award-winning author of How Food Shapes Your Child, and a presenter on Early Years TV Food Channel. As well as all this, Louise is the force behind the Health Kick, promoting a healthy lifestyle without the contradictory and often misplaced advice in the world of nutrition. and welcome to Louise's podcast. I am delighted to be talking to Robert J. Davis, also known as The Healthy Skeptic. And today we're coming from LA as well, which is rather exciting. So Robert is an award-winning health journalist and host of The Healthy Skeptic video series. He is also the author of four books, the latest of which we are talking about today. And I absolutely love the title of this book, Super-Sized Lies and how myths about weight loss are keeping us fat. Now, that's what we are discussing today, this latest book. And I want to know, first of all, Robert, what drove you to this latest book? Was it frustration? Was it a a particular driver that led you to this?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Louise. And what really drove me is that I've been a health journalist for many years. And over the years, I've received all kinds of uh, news releases, pitches, efforts to get me to cover uh, health and wellness stories in the ways that vested interests want me to. And I would say there's been no more pitching on any subject than there is on weight loss. So many different companies trying to persuade me as a journalist to cover issues in a particular way. And I've seen, because of my, I have a background in public health and epidemiology, and so I've seen through my work and my background as, uh, in public health, uh, all the misleading information that's there, all the misleading information, all the spin that's occurring just to me as a journalist. Now, never mind what's happening with regard to the public. So, that's one uh, thing that has certainly motivated me to write this book to try to just sift through all of this noise, all of this nonsense, all of this hype, and help readers understand, have a better understanding what's true and what's not, and what's right for them. And of course, on top of that, we all know we have a global obesity epidemic, which is continuing to get worse. And so, there are severe consequences to this. And I know not only we know globally what's happening, but I know so many people personally that have struggled with their weight and tried all kinds of different things that do not work over the long term. So all of those factors, I would say, motivated me to take a deeper look at this topic.
0: Well, it is very much needed, as you say. And I share, I don't have the same background as you, but I certainly share the frustrations and the, the, sort of the repetitive nature of, of what we see and what we hear from people. And it's the same, you know, a year, a decade on from the last time we heard it. It's the same stories repeating themselves in the same Hype and the same lies as you call them, as you expose them, they are lies. Now, in your book, you mentioned the way we are going with our health, the, the global epidemic. And interestingly, I was in um, a webinar with um, David L. Patz. I Don't know if you've heard of him. He's also an American physician, and he said that we've had this pandemic, this global pandemic, long before COVID, um, before COVID, and it was a pandemic of obesity, and we've had a similar death toll the covid but it's sort of just been swept under the carpet and not really exposed and the severe health consequences as you talk about are very real but for some reason the way that obesity is portrayed it's never done so as a sort of a medical it's although oh, i mean our nhs here in the uk still define obesity as eating too much and moving too little so it's oversimplified. And how does that make you feel when you hear things like that? Is it, It's much more than that, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. And I think the problem uh, is that, first of all, with regard to how we view it, I like to say it's sort of death in slow motion. So instead of a sudden catastrophic event or like of a pandemic we've seen uh, with COVID-19, this has happened. It happens more slowly and it happens over time. And it's something, unfortunately, we often just come to accept as inevitable, which we shouldn't do. Um, and, And so I think that's a problem. Also, as you say, the way that we see it is a matter of personal, entirely of personal responsibility. If people are getting sick and dying because of obesity, it's their fault, which of course is not accurate. Obesity is a highly complex phenomenon. It involves biology, it involves psychology, it involves environment, it involves genetics, it involves a host of factors. And it's far more than simply people moving too little and eating too much
0: absolutely and one of those factors i know in america your food landscape is is slightly different to ours in the uk but we're not far behind you and in terms of the ultra processed food landscape and the, the sheer availability of convenience food that are purely designed for convenience and not for health But the consumption here in the uk has certainly in the last 20 years grown a lot and i know in america you have more foods than we do more availability of foods than we do so that as a change, do you see any potential for change within the food industry, or is that too much of an ideal wish for something to happen?
1: Well, you know, I would hope so. in, in the U.S., at least, it's a we have a it's a high mountain to climb just because um, of all the forces arrayed against changes like that, uh, including uh, you know uh, restrictions on how businesses can be regulated, restrictions on how advertising can be regulated. But I never give up hope. I think that there's obviously a lot, even even small changes in the way that food is manufactured and and uh, marketed, could make a difference. Um, I will say just a, a point here, an aside, is that ironically, a lot of these highly processed foods that you talk about, and we have more and more of them all the time, are marketed as foods that will help our weight. So it's low in sugar, or it's or it's uh, low fat, or it's you know no gluten, whatever it is, and people eat these foods thinking they're helping their health, they're helping their weight. When just the opposite is true so so we have a real problem with this kind of deceptive marketing around highly processed foods
0: absolutely and that's another issue isn't it that a part of the lies that you talk about in your book in the diet industry and the correlation between since the diet industry was launched and what's happened with global obesity and the fact that this diet industry globally is this massive money-making machine and yet what has it done to impact on global obesity it's increased it. And the products that people falsely buy into and trust. And this is the sad thing about dieting, is that people are often quite emotionally, you know, quite low, have quite low self-esteem. Um, they're clutching at something that they are told is going to be the answer. And unfortunately, it's making them bigger and it's making them unhealthier. And that's that's really quite sad. But as you say, a lot of these foods are perpetuating that
1: whole cycle. What the diet industry is doing here is encouraging us to keep coming back for more of the same thing, to keep spending our money. So they keep making money because what they're offering doesn't work, but we keep coming back for more. So it's not improving the problem, it's making it worse. And then as you say, on top of that, it adds to the emotional burden, the psychological burden that this causes because people feel that they're failures. They try one thing after another, after another they find they're not getting success. And what happens? They blame themselves. They say, it's my fault because I've tried and tried and tried and I keep failing. And so it adds to this severe psychological distress, anxiety, depression that is part of the diet culture, I believe, uh, helps perpetuate.
0: Oh, absolutely. It absolutely does. And I remember a fascinating documentary that I watched years ago, probably 10 years ago, And it was the the CEO of one of the big, I won't say which one, but one of the big um, diet companies. And he said, we have got the perfect business model because we are based on failure. We rely and we get repeat customers almost every single time. So we know that. They know that. As you say, the individuals who are made to feel like they have failed and it's their fault, they essentially don't know that. They don't see that. And I'd like that truth to be exposed more and people to be more aware that it's not on them. It's much bigger than them.
1: That's absolutely true. And it was something I've always been aware of, but I think I became more acutely aware of it writing this book because I include a number of stories in the book of people who've struggled often their entire lives with their weight and how they have struggled with this um, self-blame and shame and internalized stigma when it comes to their weight and often around exactly the phenomenon you're describing where they've tried and tried and tried and feel that they're failures. When in fact, it's not the individuals who failed, it's the diets and the remedies, quote unquote, that have failed them.
0: And speaking of remedies, I love the part of your book where you talk about some of this strange and the introduction of the book goes into something I wasn't aware of and it's very bizarre, the Fletcherism. And the notion of that to me is horrendous. So it, it's you explain it because you can explain it better than I do. But the thought of doing that to the food just makes me feel quite ill. So explain what Fletcherism is. And please tell me people don't still do it.
1: Well, actually, it, there, there are some people that still uh, subscribe to a version of it. The Fletcherism referred to a phenomenon. And it, made, it started in the US, but it spread throughout the world, including to the UK. It was a guy named Horace Fletcher. Um, who about 100 years ago came up with this idea, a little more than 100 years ago, that if you chewed your food to sometimes hundreds, if not thousands of times, you would have greater vigor, you'd have greater strength, you would be healthier, and you would lose weight. And he himself lost a lot of weight, and he went around uh, uh, showcasing his method, and it became very popular. His name is Horace Fletcher, so it became known as Fletcherism. People would have chewing parties where they would munch their foods you know, till they till they went uh, till they uh, sort of liquefied, and this became a craze. And so this became sort of, and I talk about this as one of the cra- many crazy ways throughout history that people have turned to to try to control their weight. Of course, this eventually went away, but th- today there are people that advocate chewing your food many times. There's a different rationale for it, and that it's not a bad idea. You, we want to make sure that we don't gobble our food because there is some truth to if you eat too quickly, your brain doesn't mm-hmm. have time to register that you're full. But that's a whole different matter than chewing every bite until it liquefies.
0: No, there are many of these versions that I think we've probably all come across. But what's your particular favorite or the weirdest? And I won't go Fletcher with them because we've covered that one. But for me, it's the baby food diet because, you know, that's just that's I love food and I think we should enjoy our food and the baby food diet. That's that's
1: just not in my psyche at all.
0: But what's the most absurd or the one that you think, oh, really? Or even the most dangerous.
1: Well, th- there are so many uh, candidates for both of those things. One that I you know, learned about as I was researching the book that I had not heard about is called the werewolf diet, also known as the lunar diet. I like to call it the loony lunar diet, um, but it involves timing your eating to phases of the moon. So the idea being that if you, you're supposed to eat certain foods on a full moon, other foods when the moon is waning, other foods when it's waxing. And this supposedly is based on the idea that the moon's gravitational force with the earth affects your body and the, and the water, your body and so forth. And there's zero scientific evidence for any of this. That's the thing about a lot of these diets. that's exactly what I found is so many of them are complicated. They involve all kinds of complicated rules. Eat only certain foods on this day, fast every other Thursday, you know, drink these liquids on, on Saturdays. And so that's, the, that's not, not to mention that they are often completely devoid of any scientific uh, basis. But just the fact that they're so complicated, and there's so many rules to follow, and the truth is that weight management and health eating does not have to be so complicated. It's not that complicated. And a lot of these diets, these crazy diets, have turned into something that's really complex.
0: And that, that brings me nicely onto what I wanted to ask you, which is, in your opinion, um, and we all have our own views on this, and I have a very... Approach that should just be what suits you individually, not what your friend can do, not what your husband or partner can do, but what suits you individually. But what if we had to give a sort of a generic advice about what would work in terms of a healthy, balanced diet? What, how would you sort of summarize something for people? And it is unique to each individual, but as a general rule, what's your sort of go to rule for people?
1: My go-to rule is, is to think of this not in terms of a diet, not in the, uh, in terms of what you're going to do for three months or six months and then stop, but to look at an eating pattern that's going to be sustainable. And what does that mean? It's the same eating pattern that's optimal for good health. That means a generally whole foods diet, and that means eating plenty of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, beans, seeds, lean meats, dairy, if you consume dairy, and minimizing ultra-processed or highly processed foods, things like chips, soda, fried foods, uh, sweets, things like that. Now, now, notice, I didn't say never eat those foods because mm-hmm. that's not realistic. When diets tell you you can never eat something, that is a prescription for failure because that's not realistic. But it does mean that over time, people can change their eating habits where they eat more of the foods in these other categories and fewer foods uh, that are highly processed. And the beauty of this diet, as you suggest, is it's something that can be tailored to your wishes and your needs so that these are broad categories. So that within fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, beans, seeds, you find foods that you like, foods that you enjoy, foods that are going to sustain you. You don't have to eat foods that you don't like. Um, You shouldn't force ever force yourself to eat foods you don't like, but to find foods that work for you in a in combinations that work for you. And that's the beauty of it. Now it takes more effort than just following seven steps on a diet, a one size fits all diet than someone uh, publishes or or tells you about. But over the long run, it's much more likely to be successful for you because it's tailored to what works for you using these general guidelines and eating in a way that's gonna, as I say, promote not only your health, but also help you maintain a weight that's healthy for you.
0: Mm, I think that's that's a good that brings me to one of my favorite sayings, which is if it didn't grow, walk or swim don't eat it because if it's not sort of come naturally and you know from if it's been made in a lab then it's not going to give the health benefits and and give the sort of the the, even the weight loss better so this is what confuses people um and what I like about your book is that people get quite confused about weight loss and think with certain real foods nuts seeds avocados certain meats dairy produce but they are going to make them gain weight and there's been lots of misleading contradictory media information about foods one week they're good one week they're bad but certain foods stick in people's head like I can't eat avocados because they're going to make me fat I can't eat nuts and seeds because they're going to make me fat regardless of the heart heart healthy fats and the fact that some fats are actually able to be metabolized really well in the body and you know work really well for us. So I think people get quite confused about that. But what I love about the book is how it it dispels those sorts of, well, lies. They are lies, aren't they? They're not myths particularly. They are they are lies in some cases. And enables people, I think, to be better informed, which is the key. The diets tell people what to do, which nobody likes really. It you know, they might work in the short term, but nobody likes it. What I think is good about the book is how it informs that. Ability to make your own decision to what works with you. you Here are the facts. Here's what's out there. Here's what you've been told. But now go and kind of find what works for you amongst this general advice of these are the foods that are going to be good for your health. These are the foods that are not as good for your health. But if you're in control of them, not them in control of you, then they won't do your health any damage at all. But it's when people don't even enjoy the foods that are bad for them but they're so addicted to them that they can't stop eating them. And that there's no pleasure or enjoyment, is there?
1: That's absolutely true. And so I think that people have to recognize this is a long-term process. If people are eating a diet that's filled with uh, ultra-processed foods, they're not going to be able to change their eating habits overnight, but it's a matter of changing your habits over time. So to get to a point exactly as you're describing, where your diet consists mainly of the whole foods, but that you still can enjoy sweets or fried foods or soda occasionally, other things like that, but they beca- it becomes a conscious decision that you enjoy those foods as occasional treats rather than yeah. something that you eat routinely with, as you say, without even thinking about it. And that's a process that takes time, and, but, but, I, but I, I know that if people make it, I've done this myself through my life, if people make small changes over time, then they can get to a point eventually where they can uh, enjoy those foods mindfully as occasional treats rather than have them having them as everyday elements of their diet.
0: Mm, I think that mindfully is really important because I, I know that we, we touched on emotional eating, comfort eating earlier, but when the food is in control of the individual and if they're emotionally driven with their food choices that they're never going to break that cycle of control. So any stress, any failure, any, any low self-esteem is going to be driving back to the food. And I think that's a pattern that many people get in and think they can't break it. But by making those changes that we've discussed and that you mentioned about the foods, they change those food habits and those food behaviours without us even having to make that conscious decision. Ourself, the body starts to reroute and starts to make better sort of neural connections, I suppose, about our food patterns and our food addictions. And then we're able to not crave them as much. They don't control us as much. Is that something that you've seen with people? And
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think the key there is that in that case, people are not relying on willpower. The problem with so much of diet culture is it tells us we're supposed to just rely on willpower, just don't eat, just don't eat these foods. And we know what happens is that no human beings, I mean, no matter how disciplined you are, can rely entirely on willpower to keep them from, you know, uh, f- from eating uh, eating foods that maybe not may not be great for them. So as you say, it's about much more than that. It's about changing habits. It's about changing biology. It's about changing your taste buds. And so it's 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 a much larger effort than just relying on willpower to keep you from eating foods. Because we know what happens if people do that that they can maybe sustain that for a week, a month, even six months. But over time, that's not going to work.
0: And then they feel like they failed. And then we're back to square one with the cycle, both metabolically and emotionally. So it's a lose-lose rather than a a win-win situation. Right. In terms of your book, so this latest book, in an ideal world, what would you love to see the outcome of this book be? And what would you like this book to be sort of remembered for? Is it the book that changed, that disrupted the diet industry and, and got people opening their eyes to this? these lies, I mean, what would you really love to, what would your ideal outcome of this book be?
1: Really, it's fairly modest, and that is for individuals to be able to make better decisions for themselves, to be able to think twice when they see some kind of crazy or even seemingly uh, believable diet offered up to them, to be able to ask the right questions, to be able to critically analyze that information, and think about, is this really a good approach for me? Does this make sense? Is this going to be successful? and to find out what's right for them. I mean, what I like to say about the work, this book and the other books I've written is my job is not to tell people what to do. It's not to lay out the seven steps you should follow. My job is simply just to give information as honestly and thoroughly as I can so that people can think critically about the information they're getting, think skeptically about the information they're getting and make better decisions for themselves. And if I can achieve that uh, for people who've read the book, I'm very satisfied because I think if we can have more people who can uh, be able to use the information they have in a wise way to to sort through all this noise. Then I think that a lot more people would have success in being able to arrive at and maintain a healthy weight.
0: And you know as well that if you help sort of the grown ups make that decision and, and gain that healthier lifestyle through their own sort of knowledge and and decisions, that they will pass that on to their next generation to their children. And the alternative can be passed on the other way. So it's not just one generation that you're helping by opening people's eyes and enabling them to see this and to make those decisions for themselves. It's actually their children will benefit and and their children will benefit. Because if we factor in epigenetics and how we have the heritable traits that we can pass on through lifestyle, we, we know at the moment we're passing on. You can see from health trends we're going the wrong direction and we're, you know, we're not getting healthier, getting unhealthier. So any reversal of that is is most certainly welcome and on a global scale, um, but is done, as you say, in a way that is the individual being in control of that instead of needing, you know, needing interventions in terms of surgeries and severe interventions on, on weight loss, etc. It's It's a more natural process of going through that.
1: Yes. And, you know, the, Element of this is just establishing healthful eating habits early in life for children. I know I grew up in a home where we ate all kinds of junk food, and it's I continue to struggle with those eating habits that are so deeply ingrained, where I crave fried foods and, and, and sugary donuts and all kinds of food soda and things like that. And I've had to work to change my habits over the years, and I've been able to thankfully do that successfully, but it wasn't easy. And so I think when children, if you can start children off in life, with wanting healthful foods and not craving junk foods, I think you're giving them a huge advantage that they will not have the struggle throughout their lives that so many of us do.
0: Mm, absolutely. A large percentage of the work I do is in early years in terms of shaping those early habits um, so that their their food choices are driven by natural preference for healthy foods rather than, as you say, I kind of know that I should eat this, but my preference would be to sort of fall into this and have this. But is that you now? I guess your preference is healthy because our palate does change, and you will probably reject something overly sweet and synthetic because it will taste horrible. But for people who battle it, it's I it's, like to think that we can get the generation of children, you know, to fancy and crave and like healthier foods. Not because they're weird and not because they want a diet and not because it's a I'm doing this for this reason, but because that's just their preferred food pathway. And it is possible. I've done it with my own son. Here's my guinea pig. (laughs) I know it's possible. He's he's eight and he doesn't like sweet. He's never had um, the fast food drive through place with the burgers. He's never had that. He does not appeal. His palate is is really good. I now don't say no to him, but it's his choice. And he actually rejects things because they are just they're just weird to him. Because if he didn't grow walk or swim, then that's what he's been brought up with. And so his palate rejects so it is completely possible to nurture a palate to like, crave, and you know, really want those healthy foods. And and we are responsible for that next generation's health. So we can do it by the grown-ups. And we can educate the grown-ups, but we also need to get the children so that we treat them like little grown-ups as well that are able to understand their biology and understand their role in their food choices. And I think children are more than capable of doing that.
1: Absolutely. And it's up to us to to guide them. Absolutely. Well, that's what I try to do with my books. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> so well, but I think we're almost at an end unless there's anything and we need to get out there how people can access your book and, and where it's available. Is it out now? I know I had a pre um
1: order release, so I don't it's think. available through Amazon and through other read uh, online sellers. Uh, the if, if people would like to learn more, they can go to my website, which is healthyskeptic.com. And there, they can find out more about this book and the previous books. Also, I have a number of short videos that take various health claims and look at the science and break down the the claims. And so uh, I I, I invite people to go to Healthy Skeptic if they're interested in looking at any of those.
0: Thank you. It's been really fascinating talking to you. And I think we could probably talk for several days about this, but I think we've kind of covered... I think we've kind of covered what we need to and I've and got people's attention span for as long as we can, you know, people have very short attention spans these days. So I think we may have um, covered what we need to. And it's been really fascinating talking to to you. I'm enjoying your book. I'm not all the way through it yet. I'm about two thirds of the way through and, um, and my highlighter pen and my post-it notes are going in there. So it's, but I would say it's not just for people who, who think they need to lose weight. It's for people who work with people wanting to lose weight. So personal trainers, um, People who work in nutrition, people who um, do these awful clubs where they gather people together and shame them on the scales, you know, getting them to, to read the book um, and to, you know, question, you know, everything that they think they know about the diet industry and, and what we're told. I think it's for anybody also who perhaps isn't carrying too much weight because we know that you don't have to be overweight to be unhealthy um you can be malnourished you can have high levels of internal fat so those foods even if you don't look like you're overweight will still not be doing you any good so it's i'd say it's not just for people who need to lose weight but it's for it's a good weed
1: is what i would say well, thank you. and I hope readers will find that to be the case. And I like to think that it would be of interest to everybody. And certainly a lot of the stories behind the stories about where some of these ideas, these common ideas, whether it's exercise or counting calories or some of the common things we hear about, I, I really enjoy delving into the history of some of these. It was certainly interesting for me as I was writing it, and I hope it will be interesting for readers.
0: Oh, I'm sure it will be. So thank you very much to Robert for joining us tonight, this morning, everywhere where you are.
1: Thank you, Louise. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Listening to Louise's Health Kick podcast with Louise Messier. discussing all things health and nutrition to show you that food and health are intrinsically linked and teaching you how amazing you can feel. Find out more at www.thehealthkick.co.uk or read her book, How Food Shapes Your Child, or get in touch on social media. This is a
1: 1386 audio production.